0: Okay, can I have your attention please? Thank, thank you very much for coming out tonight, my name is Mike Savage, I'm the Director of the International Indie Courses Institute, it's a fantastic privilege to uh, be chairing this book launch tonight, um, it's a book I've heard a lot about, working with David over recent years, um, it's very clear it's going to be a major piece of research, we shall have a major significance in shaping our debates about political change to democracy and capitalism. So I'm very much looking forward to the debate. I will just say introduce the speakers and then I'll say a bit about the format and then I'll pass on to Torben to start us off. So uh, the book Democracy and Prosperity, Reinventing Capitalism um, Through a Turbulent Century has been written by Torben Iverson and David Soskis. Torben Iverson is Harold Hitchings Burbank Professor of Political Economy at Harvard, the author of many books, including Women, Work and Politics, and Capitalism, Democracy and Welfare. David Soskis really needs no introduction. uh, One of the leading political economists in the world, very well known for his work on varieties of capitalism. And I have to say, speaking personally, he's been a fantastic colleague in the IAI and the LSE. He's just been hugely important in making... International Inequalities Institute, the place it is today. So I'm really, really uh, pleased and proud on a personal level to be chairing this um, event. And then Sarah Hubboldt is the Sutherland Chair in European Institutions and Professor in the Department of Government and the European Institute. Um, She's previously held posts at Oxford and Michigan. Uh, So we have a fantastic uh, night ahead of us. Um, The format will be Torben will introduce the book in about 20 minutes with some slides uh, we don't have a long introduction we want to get lots of time for the chance to debate so Torben will say a few words about the book and then Sarah as a discussant will come and she will give some quite developed uh, reflections and ask some questions to uh, Torben and David and that exchange and that Q&A should take another 20 25 minutes or so um, and that will leave us around half an hour at the end for questions and answers from the floor. So um, it should be a fantastic evening. Let me hand over to Torben. Uh,
1: well, I, I want to uh, to thank everybody for for showing up here today. It's exciting to see uh, such a big crowd, and I also want to uh, to thank um, LSE and the Inequalities Institute, and uh, especially Mike Savage. Uh, for organizing uh, this uh, discussion of our book. I'm really excited to be here, really excited to be back at the LSE, in fact, uh, and I look forward to your, your comments on this project. So um, let me say a little bit about the background for, for, for this book. Uh, we have been very much um, motivated uh, by, by recent events and what we see as a deep pessimism about the future of democratic uh, capitalism as it exists uh, in the countries we're living in, uh, advanced rich uh, capitalist uh, societies. And it's not uh, difficult to see the origins of this kind of pessimism. Um, The rise of right populism in Europe, Trump in America, Brexit in this country, as well as the longest uh, economic recession since the 1930s which is still lingering in the form of low uh, growth rates. And we've also seen a very sharply rising um, degree of inequality across across these countries uh, since basically the 1980s, and we've seen a retreat of governments from redistribution, at least uh, some forms of redistribution. And this has led to a very... Concerted uh, and involved critique of advanced capitalist uh, democracies. Much of this critique is coming from the left, and there are sort of two varieties of this uh, left critique that we are engaging with uh, in the book and that I want to engage with, we want to engage with uh, in uh, this um, presentation today. Uh, The first variety is uh, the argument that footloose capital, mobile capital, undermines the autonomy of the democratic uh, state. These are arguments that have been fo- uh, brought forth, uh, forth by uh, people like uh, Strike, Piketty, and before them, Andrew Glynn. It's the notion that the democratic nation-state really needs to be able to control its borders, and it needs to control the mobility of capital in order to regulate and in order to redistribute. The second variety of the left critique is that the rich and business interests are subverting democracy through the use of money, and this is a problem that has been magnified by the concentration, increasing concentration of wealth, as well as through uh, lobbying. And this is an argument that we associate with uh, prominent scholars such as uh, Marty Gillins, uh, Bartels, Hacker, and Pearson. There are many others. Um, There's also a white critique uh, that we uh, address in the book, but I won't say very much about today, uh, which is uh, one that goes back to to Hayek and is echoed in in some of the public choice uh, literature today, and it's the notion that democracy will undermine uh, capitalism. Uh, We think that... Uh, the real danger in in this way of of looking at what's going on. Uh, It's not that we don't share the concerns of these uh, authors uh, and and, uh, and the recent events, but there is a risk that these analyses will turn into what we might call systemic uh, pessimism, uh, that advanced capitalist democracies are in deep crisis, that they are fundamentally flawed, that capitalism can only work for a small minority, and that capitalism and democracy are fundamentally at loggerheads uh, and cannot coexist. The danger is that when we look back in history, um, in the 1930s, it was precisely this kind of systemic pessimism that split the left into communism and social democracy, As well as um, arguably split the right into um, mainstream conservative and liberal parties and fascism. And this is uh, not the kind of world uh, we want to get into. So, our argument in brief um, is uh, first that these are real and serious uh, concerns, and we share them, we wake up to these headlines every day uh, in the newspapers. Uh, and they worry us. But what we have done in this book is to try to take a long-term perspective uh, uh, on advanced capitalist democracies, uh, and uh, what you very quickly discover is uh, how incredibly successful they have been. They have created unprecedented prosperity uh, as well as uh, relatively high levels of income equality as well compared to any other existing unknown political and economic system out there. Advanced capitalist democracies have also been remarkable uh, in terms of uh, being resilient uh, despite all these uh, turbulent events uh, that have occurred through the century, and that's uh, the subtitle of the book, The Great Depression, Two World Wars, The End of Empires, Technological Revolutions, Fall of the Wall, and the Financial Crisis through all these huge transformations, advanced capitalist democracies still survive. We argue in the book that this reflects this resilience, reflects, uh, when we consider this again over a long period of time, a symbiotic relationship between democracy and advanced capitalism. And we do not think that recent developments have fundamentally changed this symbiotic relationship. Instead, we see populism, rising inequality, and so on as expressions are of how this relationship between capitalism and democracy has evolved, especially in the transition to a, a new knowledge economy. So these are real things. And they are part of the evolution of advanced capitalist democracies, but they are not ultimately uh, a threat. Just a few highlights from the kind of uh, arguments that I'm going to be elaborating a little bit uh, further as I go along. We think that advanced capitalism is nationally embedded, that capital is not footloose, and that the state is, uh, the advanced nation state, is strong and autonomous and could do a lot of things. Democracy is not sworn by capital or the rich in the way that it's portrayed in the literature. Populism is a new cleavage. Uh, We think it's an important uh, uh, political uh, change and it's an important division, but it's not ultimately a threat to democracy or to capitalism. At the same time, we want to emphasize, and I think this is is an important takeaway from the book, that democracy also does not guarantee equality. And it does not guarantee the welfare of those at the bottom. It does not necessarily do anything for the poor. And we we think it's very important to understand that this is a problem with democracy and how it works, not with capitalism. And it's important because we can actually do something about democracy but we can't very easily change the entire system. So just a a few figures here just uh, to illustrate some of these things. Uh, This figure here shows uh, these are measures of inequality of income. Uh, On one axis, it's inequality of market income measured by the Gini coefficient. And on the Y axis, we have uh, uh, the inequality of disposable income. um, And the 45-degree line uh, is essentially a line that shows if there was no effect or no change uh, from before taxes and transfers to after uh, the countries their observations would just be lying on the line as you can see most countries in the world actually do redistribute uh, through the, the, the state there's some redistribution and that's why the points, most of the points are lying below the 45 degree line so this is sort of a picture of inequality in the entire world so where do advanced capitalist democracies fit in here well, it turns out that they are all countries, uh, despite their differences in inequality and despite, despite the rise of inequality over the past three or four decades, these are relatively egalitarian countries when we look at after-taxes and transfers uh, inequality, disposable income inequality. So you can see where they belong in the figure uh, and what we also see when we look at this over long periods of time is that the most innovative and most prosperous economies today are pretty much the ones that were also innovative and prosperous all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. Of course, it's very difficult to get data that goes that far back, but um, it's very clear that if we try to measure um, Innovating, innovative capacity, and here we have used patents as an indicator. Uh, that uh, that innovative capacity is very much concentrated in a small group of uh, countries, uh, the advanced capitalist democracies that we're focusing on in this book, and that exclusive club has not changed very much over time. A few countries have joined it basically since the beginning of the 20th century, and those are the East Asian tigers. It's Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore. It's very difficult to break into this group, and we think we have some reasons for why that is, uh, why that is the case. But the point of this graph is just simply to say the most innovative, the most prosperous uh, economies, countries in the world continue to be this small cluster of advanced capitalist democracies. So what is the foundation of this symbiotic relationship? Um, Well, we we, we sort of try to identify both economic, institutional, and political institutional (coughs) foundations of this, uh, uh, what we call, a symbiotic uh, relationship. Uh, The first economic uh, fact uh, that we have to understand, and it's a very important fact, is that advanced capitalism is based on high-skilled, high-educated labor. It's not a logical implication of advanced capitalism. You could imagine that you had um, high output based on on low-skilled workers, uh, but it's a very important empirical fact that capitalism in these countries is actually based on high-skilled labor. That means that I have some important implications here. That means that advanced firms depend on local knowledge clusters of highly educated and specialized labor who are embedded uh, themselves in social networks. Um, and this kind of specialization across countries uh, into these knowledge clusters is something that ties down capital. So, And we think that this is actually reinforced by foreign direct investment. So the more globalized the world becomes, the more um, concentrated uh, the knowledge Uh, is being uh, embedded into these uh, local um, knowledge economies. So from this perspective, it's very clear, we think, that uh, the movement over time has not been towards footloose capital. It has been uh, actually a movement uh, towards tying down uh, capital. So capital is not footloose. That's addressing the first uh, uh, left uh, critique. Another implication of this, if this is true, is that the nation state is strong with wide scope for regulation and redistribution. Don't think that the democratic state can't redistribute because of capitalism. It can. Um, it also has the implication that there's a large constituency for policies that promote advance the advanced sectors of the economy, And here we have in mind, uh, obviously, the educated middle classes, but also what we call aspirational voters. And aspirational voters are voters who are not necessarily uh, fully integrated into the advanced sectors of the economy, but have an ambition of becoming integrated or moving into those sectors, maybe not themselves, but uh, then for their children. And uh, our sort of uh, political analysis is very much based on the notion of uh, families being units uh, of analysis and and parents being very concerned about their children doing well. As long as they see that their children uh, have good opportunities in the economy, they are much more likely uh, to support policies uh, that keep perpetuating the institutions uh, that characterize uh, these countries, these economies. The political foundation of this uh, is that governments build or try to build reputations for good governance by investing, especially in, in education and middle-class uh, social programs, and in, more, in a more general way, and I'll speak a little bit more specifically about this in a minute, uh, by perpetuating the institutional infrastructure that supports uh, the advanced sectors, One of these institutions, uh, one of these policies is uh, tough competition policies. And it's very sort of common to hear people talk about competition as something that was invented by capitalism. Uh, And we think it's exactly the other way around. It's actually democracy that is enforcing uh, tough competition rules, and because it is, in in order to generate uh, (laughs) uh, economic progress through innovation, Capital actually becomes fragmented, and it becomes politically weak as a class. We think it's become weaker over time, not stronger, contrary to most of the arguments uh, out there. It also has the implication that middle class interests are broadly attended to uh, through uh, education, that is, giving people skills that can be used in the knowledge economy, uh, in in, the sort of um, skill-intensive economy, Uh, public goods provision as well as uh, transfers uh, through the welfare state. This is the way that you uh, make sure that the middle class are also uh, participating uh, in the wealth creation of these economies. The lack of redistribution towards the poor, which is clearly a a problem, and it's also lack of redistribution in social programs for those who are just below uh, the middle Reflect in our uh, opinion, uh, in our view, this is part of our argument, a failure of democracy as opposed to capitalism. And this is actually meant to be a positive message because we think we can do something about democracy uh, and um, through our de- uh, democratic channels. But just to show you one um, uh, graph here on this middle class incorporation because I know you're all thinking well, there's this enormous literature out there that says that the middle class is falling behind, right? You know, they're losing out. And it's just not true. There are some that are losing out the old middle classes, and I'll talk about those a little bit in a minute. Uh, but if you look at just simply the mean-to-median income ratio from 1985 to 2010, which is the period of the most rapid increase in inequality in these countries very, very little has happened, okay, which is another way of saying, and, and this is, by the way, this refers to disposable income. So this is after taxes and transfers, okay, so this includes transfers and social services and so on. But if you, if, if you take that into account, uh, if you look at disposable income inequality, um, the middle class has actually kept its position in the economy measured against uh, Uh, the mean output or the mean income uh, in society. And that means when the economy is growing, if this keeps being the case, um, the middle class is also prospering. And then a few words on on what uh, uh, we uh, try to argue is a very important um, thing to understand about these countries, which is that Democracy continuously reinvent capitalism. And what we mean by this is that uh, the rise, we look at the rise of the knowledge economy. This is not something that was caused by, the global, uh, by global capitalism or by business interest. It was a set of institutional reforms initiated and implemented by democratic governments in order to push the economy forward. These were reforms of the financial system to allow for a much more decentralized and global uh, production system with what we call non-linear careers, people moving between work and family and between work and further education, which uh, requires access to uh, finance. It was uh, reforms of the macroeconomic regime to anchor inflation and exchange rate uh, expectations in a much more globalized world. It was uh, reforms of product market competition and trade uh, to uh, force uh, companies to uh, innovate uh, and to invest. And it was, uh, above all, um, a major reform of the higher educational system and training system in general, plus uh, investment in research and development, all to facilitate uh, the growth of local knowledge clusters. The consequences of these reforms, and sort of going through this circle of this um, symbiotic relationship, consequences of these reforms were to allow the spread of decentralized production networks that is based very heavily on skilled uh, labor. It replaced... Um, uh, large vertically integrated chandelierian companies that existed in the Fordist economy, with much more decentralized forms of business organization that are very closely tied in with social networks, and it's actually now uh, harder and harder to distinguish between uh, firms and social networks in many of these, uh, you know, high uh, tech areas. It created strong agglomeration effects, knowledge clusters. That have been concentrated in the cities, especially those with good universities and infrastructure, such as London. And again, this is something that has been reinforced by foreign direct investment as uh, global companies are trying to take advantage of the innovative, uh, innovative potential of these uh, knowledge uh, clusters. At the same time, and this is really important to understand the current conditions politically. This transition undermined the complementarities that used to exist between skilled and semi-skilled workers and between large cities and small towns and rural areas in the Fordist industrial economy. Um, Skilled and semi-skilled workers were strong complements in the production process in the industrial economy, uh, and uh, small towns essentially functioned as, as feeder towns Uh, for the industrial machine in the big cities. All these complementarities have disappeared and skilled and semi-skilled labor has been segmented into separate sectors and uh, uh, close uh, connections between the large cities and the small towns and rural areas have been undermined. And this has created an enormous amount of inequality along skill lines and along geographical lines. And we think... Those new divisions have created what we might ca- call a Wukanian uh, cleavage, going back to Wukan's to uh, famous uh, work on this. Structurally, this new cleavage is reflected in increased inequality and re- reduced uh, mobility uh, because of segmentation geographically, but also segmentation in the labor market. And this is essentially equivalent to an outward shift of what economists call the Great Gatsby Curb, which is uh, showing the relationship—a negative relationship—between inequality and uh, intergenerational mobility. This change, we think, this new cleavage, is a source of reactionary populism, and you might call, uh, you might uh, talk about reactionary identities as well, anti-elite anti-cosmopolitan, anti-immigration, and this is the foundation, of course, for the rise of populist parties. This problem, this division, this political division, the rise of populism, has been magnified by the economic crisis and much lower growth rates because it shuts down a considerable amount of mobility, upward mobility. On the other hand, it has been moderated by investment in educational opportunity. So we see this is something we can, we can actually <clears throat> detect empirically very clearly, that in countries that have better access at the lower end, sort of for, the, for the lower middle classes into the educational system and for their children to, to move into the uh, educational system and get uh, good, valuable degrees... Um, When that occurs, uh, populist values are much less uh, prevalent. They just seem to to vanish. Uh, And secondly, uh, we also see, and this is something we see now going on in in, in Western Europe, uh, I think, uh, what what we might call the mainstreaming of uh, populist parties. Uh, And by that we mean that they are no longer just anti-systemic parties, but they're actually parties that are trying to work within the system, and they're increasingly being uh, accepted into the system by existing mainstream uh, parties. And the second thing we mean by mainstreaming is that they're increasingly reflecting the economic interest of uh, of their constituencies, some of them we might refer to as losers, uh, and this is actually a very good thing, uh, despite you know what we might think about um, the toxic uh, aspects of these uh, of the agendas of of these uh, parties. Incorporating them into the political system uh, is a good thing because it actually starts addressing some of the uh, problems uh, that um, are created um, by this new cleavage. <coughs> So uh, to very uh, briefly uh, summarize the uh, argument here, uh, we argue that governments provide the institutional infrastructure for the knowledge economy, notably, uh, of course, education and research, but also strong competition uh, policies and a stable macroeconomic environment. Investment into these local knowledge clusters embeds capital in the nation-state and it gives government the power to regulate and to redistribute. Decisive voters, these educated middle-class voters plus these aspirational voters, uh, re-elect governments uh, that have developed over time a good reputation for promoting uh, the advanced sectors and responding to middle-class demands for education and social insurance Business is fragmented by strong and increasingly strong competition policies, international trade exposure, and they are, business is, politically weak as a class. Right populism, what we're all scared about right now, reflects a new cleavage in the knowledge economy, but it's conditioned by government policies, especially access to education, so there is a fundamental solution uh, to this problem. And then finally, and just to reiterate this, democracy is not a guarantee of equality, and I think what we have seen in the transition to a knowledge economy is is an increasing bifurcation and polarization of the labor markets uh, and, and uh, of income as, uh, as well, as well as mobility. So in the forest uh, industrial economy, there was a lot of mobility uh, in, in the middle class. Across sort of lower uh, upper middle classes, a lot of mobility, and that mobility has been declining over time. And what is important about that is that it undermines solidarity uh, in the middle classes that have political influence, uh, to actually care about those who are below them. This is a real problem for democracy. Uh, you can say it's been created by these technological transformations, but those themselves were really instituted and carried through by uh, democratic uh, governments. So we, we need to re-examine uh, the way that democracy works, but uh, advanced capitalist democracies, as we see it in this long-term perspective, is, is pretty stable and pretty safe. Thank you.
0: Thank you, thank you, Torben, for, uh, for that brilliant summary of um, such a complex and sophisticated book. So we're now going to pass over to Sarah. Do you want to sit there or do you want to get up to the stage?
2: I'll, I'll sit there because I'll ask them some questions. Okay, over to you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a great honor to be here um, and to have been given a preview of this book. Uh, you should all read it course it's a very important book and it's a very important book by two of the greatest contemporary political scientists and political economists. And it's also a very brave book and uh, let me explain why I think it's very brave. So today we're facing a British prime minister who is um, saying that he's not going to rule out uh, a no-deal Brexit even though she acknowledges it would be quite catastrophic potentially for Uh, For the British economy, we have a chancellor who is saying that even in the best-case scenario, uh, Brexit will be bad for the economy. We have the longest shutdown uh, in the U.S. uh, of the government and an escalating trade war with China. And uh, then we have this book that argues (laughs) that advanced uh, capitalist democracies are resilient and stable and that voters primarily care about economic competence. And we know that the conservatives are, of course, ahead in the polls, and that Trump is, you know, while not doing brilliantly, still has his base. So I think lesser observers might, when they're faced with these kind of realities, might think, oh, God, you know, jump on the bandwagon and be terribly alarmist and focus on these short-term disruptions and, um, and these changes. Um, and that's exactly what we've seen many have done. You know, if we, I was perusing the sort of best selling political science books of recent years and looking at the titles. How Democracies Die I think this is by one of your colleagues, Tom, yes. Levitsky yes. and Seablat. Uh-huh. How Democracy Ends by Ronsiman, How Will Capitalism End? By Strike and The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom Is In Danger and How to Save It. So these books are, you know, they're by distinguished scholars and um, although reading them I thought it sounds a bit like political scientists have been reading too many self-help books. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, actually, that you should really miss the trick by calling this book How Democracy and Capitalism Thrive, in keeping with this uh, theme. Mm. Uh, but I think you bravely and rightly take a different perspective in this book, and that's instead of what we often do, journalists love doing it, but even us as social scientists often like to focus on the change, we like to focus on the, what's dramatic. We should really understand why things stay the same, why things are stable, why they're resilient. And that's exactly what you've done in this book, not just telling us that there's resilience, but also providing a very impressive theory and very impressive evidence of why that's the case. And so I think your book is really a beautiful example of this value of systematic measured analysis of long term <laughs> trends and also the importance of theory and historical analysis in explaining why we see these trends. And of course it, ex- it presents this important argument that, that, that Tobin summarized that I'm not going to go over, which is why advanced capitalists, the advanced capitalist state had become strengthened by democracy and even by globalization and why there's this symbiotic relationship between capitalism and democracy. And there are these three elements, and I have a question about each of these elements, so just reiterate them. And one is on the central role of government in governing capitalism and why the national government is still strong. One is on the role of the electorate in rewarding economically competent governments, and then the national embeddedness of capitalism that where capital, advanced capital, is immobile enough to make government strong and powerful rather than powerless. So so what I wanted to do instead of talking at you sort of another 15 minutes was to really ask three sets of questions around each of these assumptions. Uh, and I'm sure you'll have great answers. And, of course, because I love this book so much, it was difficult, but I thought it's sort of boring if I just do another 10 minutes of, you know, how wonderful it is. So let me start... Um, so, so my three questions is first of all on this model of electoral behavior that underlines, uh, and underlies this, um, this model of, of, of why capitalism and democracy are symbiotic. Secondly, about the symbiotic relationship between democracy on the one hand and capitalism. And lastly, about the national embeddedness. So firstly, on this, um, on the model of, of, of the voter, and this is maybe where I feel more comfortable because uh, you know, I study voting behavior. So, so at the core of your theory is really this idea that you have, you don't use the term median voter, but it's a sort of median voter, uh, this decisive middle-class voter who ultimately cares about economic competence. So this is how this sub- survives, this advanced capitalism, because voters have aligned interests with advanced capitalism, and they reward governments that manage the economy well. Yeah? Uh, And it's, first of all, I was struck by that that's kind of a valence argument. There's not a lot of spatial, uh, you've both written brilliant things in sort of more spatial frameworks. It's not very spatial. It's sort of we all have the same objective about what's a good economy, and we just reward the governments that do the best job. It also assumes the predominance of economic considerations. So you do address Mm -hmm. this in Chapter 5, but I still want to sort of... Ask you a bit about it. And it assumes a high degree of rationality and competence of voters because they have to be able to see who manages the economy well. You should think it was pretty obvious, let's say, right now. Are there, is the current British government managing the economy well? I don't know, but that's the sort of... <laughs> and so, so there's two challenges to this, and I'm not saying you haven't addressed it, but I'm going to push you on it a bit.
1: Yes.
2: One is the rise of cultural identity politics. So you have a whole chapter on that, which I think makes actually a really big, important contribution to that debate. And what you say is, well, that is true. There is this second dimension that matters, which, of course, partly also fuels populism, but that has an economic <coughs> dimension. And I think I fully agree with you, and I think there's been too much of this culture versus the economy, and you show evidence that's compelling. But I would still say, even if this new cleavage has an economic dimension, particularly this education uh, dimension. Does that mean that uh, that can't crowd out these economic competence signals that your model relies on? In other words, even if it is the populist, you know, the, the appeal of populism has an economic basis, the fact that they talk about identity politics, that they talk about nationalism, that they talk about getting rid of foreigners or getting rid of the EU means that the signals about you know, it's really about the economy stupid, are crowded out. And that's what we see when we study individual-level voting behavior, that people care less and less about economic competence and more and more about this new dimension. So, so I'm wondering how far does the fact that it has an economic basis, how far does that take you in terms of sort of the weakening of this economic signal? And also you say, well people in countries where you have greater educational opportunities because you also, you have a quite strong statement that's, I love this, so they're very, it's a great book also because they make very strong statements. <laughs> Populism can be readily undermined by public policies designed to open educational opportunities for more people. So. Bob and I share a little secret, which is we're both from a from a wonderful country with a lot of educational opportunities, which is Denmark, but also with a very, very strong populist tradition. You know, in Denmark they were xenophobic and populist before it became fashionable and you know, the rest. And, and so, so that's sort of a bit my starting point. You know, is that is it really that simple? And, and, and do we worry that this culture and identity takes away, even if it's economically embedded, does it take away this sort of focus on economic competence? And then there's another challenge to the economic model, and that's the sort of, are voters even, even if they had the information, are they competent enough to uh, to, to process it? Because there's a whole literature, as you know, with Bartels and others that you, you cite, which is saying no voters are very biased, they're very partisan, the U.S. is, of course, a, a an example of that, so they don't even pick up economic signals because they're so inside their own tribe, you know, they're Democrats or so whatever Trump does, even if he was a brilliant manager of the economy, no one would ever pick it up, yeah? And does that bias and that partisanship that, that colors how we see the world, in Britain what we have at the moment is that bias translated into Brexit, you know, if you're a Remainer you think things are going terribly, if you're a Lever you think, you know, either things are going great, but they certainly will be, you know? So that again, does that undermine that Fundamental assumption in your model that voters will vote rationally and vote for the parties that are economically competent. So that's yes. my first challenge yes. too. Yes.
0: Over to Torben and David. Bye.
3: So, mm-hmm. Yeah, but do you, why don't you start? I'll want to comment, comment <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh,
1: I'll, I'll uh, It's depend. a really, really, really excellent point, and, and th- thanks for uh, for bringing it up. Um, I think we understand that. Um, rational voting is a very complicated thing, let me put it that way and it goes all the way back to Downs Uh, Downs identified uh, what he called uh, rational ignorance, uh, which is uh, individuals just don't have any incentives to really invest in political information because that information is not going to give them any impact on public policy, so public policy is a public goods and, and therefore you have no incentive to be informed and we take that very, very seriously um, we don't push it in, in this book, but we have done it in, in other work. And in that other work, what we have been foc- focusing on is people's um, embeddedness in social networks. Uh, we think that people get most of the uh, information uh, from social uh, networks. And ultimately, what makes social networks, if this is how people acquire information, we talk, about, we talk to each other about stuff. And whatever we talk about, uh, we learn uh, from that conversation, and we also have incentives uh, to learn something about what we're talking about, whether or not it's, uh, it's football or it's uh, politics or, God forbid, uh, baseball. Uh, when, when your network is – I live in Boston – and when your network is talking a lot about these things, uh, you, you, you acquire incentives to actually become informed. Those incentives are obviously very um, polarized or very uh, unequal in the sense that um, people like us, we talk a lot about politics, and I think it's reasonable among people like us that we will arrive at sort of sensible understandings of uh, politics. Um, many people are not in those kind of uh, discussion networks, and so they develop very vague ideas about politics and might be more swayable um, in, in terms of, of say populist politics, I think it reinforces our argument, if this is true, in the sense that we want to say that it's the educated middle classes right that are pretty much run, running the show, sort of broadly speaking, and they are the ones who are in uh, social networks in which it 's reasonable to expect that they will arrive at pretty uh, fair or under, uh, accurate understandings of politics and therefore can vote in a way uh, that is uh, sensible, that will advance their interest. It's much less uh, true of the poor. It's much less true of uh, the old middle classes uh, because their networks have very very much been splintered by these uh, economic transformations. It does make them amenable uh, to be picked up by these other issues that you talked about. And I think actually Denmark is a great example. We've had a what a populist party for forty five years or something like that you know it 's been around for a very long time, so we know something about this in denmark and uh, It is absolutely true that a lot of people got um, attracted to this populist party when it started back in the 19, early 1970s uh, by their non economic uh, sort of uh, appeals uh, and, and, and the most important one of course being An anti-immigration appeal but also sort of appeals to nationalism and and the Danish people and so on and so forth what has happened over time I think is what I would call a learning process and and I hope that this is what will resolve some of the issues that you're bringing up uh, over time The learning process had been a a process, a very tumultuous uh, process for the party itself because it was basically taken over, right, by a politician who really wanted to bring the party into the mainstream, peer care score. And she then created a separate party that had very many of the same sort of issues, especially uh, uh, anti-immigration, but it was also a party that wanted to be a mainstream party. And that uh, meant uh, appealing to mainstream parties and saying, we're not rejecting you. We're not rejecting the system. We want to be part of the system. We want to have political influence. That was one part of this mainstreaming. And it, gradually, the, the, the mainstream parties were warming up to this party and saying, we, we can use those mandates uh, uh, to, to build uh, uh, policies. And Pierre Kersko, uh, of course, was uh, elected as, uh, as the Speaker of the Parliament, right? This is how incorporated <laughs> they became into the established party system. That was one part. The other part was that the party moved from what was a crazy position on – Economic and social policies basically on the right, right? So we, we just want to do away with the state. We want, to, we want to cut taxes, right? And that made absolutely no sense when you looked at the constituencies for the party, which were, you know, manual working class, basically. <laughs> and Pierre Kersgore saw this very clearly. And over time, she moved the party to the left. If you go in and look at their platform today, it it reads exactly like a social democratic platform from beginning to end. Except that it has this big section on immigration, right? Which is, and, and nationalism, it's, it's still there. Uh, but it's increasingly representing, I think, the interest of these constituencies. So it goes back to your question about rational voters and so on. I think over time there's been a learning process, and that movement to the left has actually been incredibly successful for, for the party. It just picked up more and more of these. Disgruntled uh, working class worlders, basically, uh, and it became more uh, influential as a result. So it's a very complicated process, and obviously, when you look at, pro- uh, at Trump and Trump policies, right, it's, it's remarkable how unrelated they are to the real sort of economic interest of his constituents. And all I can say is. Um, I hope and I expect that there will actually be a learning (coughs) process going on here where his constituencies will realise that uh, their interests are not well attended to. That's what has happened. I I don't think this is just a Danish example. It's happened uh, in other West European countries as well. David,
3: So, (coughs) well, (coughs) obviously, (coughs) talking about economic competence and questions like that at the moment in this country... It's not the most, obviously, brilliant place to start, however. <laughs> I, I do think that, 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 that one lesson one can draw from thinking about how we talk about politics at the moment um, is that we pay a great deal of attention to the question. We, we would deeply like it if either of the parties in this country showed themselves to be competent parties and above all showed themselves to be economically competent parties we say when we have these conversations where we say i mean i, we, I know no particular uh secret i've been a labour party member all my all my life uh, <laughs> and we look at how awful the behaviour of the Conservative Party politicians is and then we look at Labour <laughs> and then we say uh, if we really want, if we want this country to work, are we serious that Corbyn can produce an economic policy which will, which will work in this country? So we, we usually end this conversation um, in a sort of semi-semi uh, situation of despair, and to both your to both your houses, but, uh, I think it's really interesting. If we and we sometimes talk. By the way, um, we never talk in our social network about baseball or <laughs> uh, even football. <laughs> What we do talk about, though, is to go back and look at political leaders in this country over the past 30, 40 years or so. And there are very few of them who we would think of as not having a relatively high degree of competence and having built up a reputation, particularly for economic management, which was is a, a reputation which has counted hugely in the way in which people, in which people vote now those reputations there may have been times, that, for instance, under Thatcher, where there were different different situations different different positions held by different party leaders or by different parties. but nonetheless, if you take the Thatcher period, it was very clear that Thatcher was deeply concerned about how on earth do you run. Do you run the? Do, do you run a government? Do, do you run a, an economy like the British economy? I haven't. We, I guess at that time I happened to d- disagree with her particular way of of doing it. But nonetheless, he was a very, he was a very able person who had a group of people around her who were equally able people. Who and, and the way the economy worked was an absolutely critical question of the day and how people how people voted. again, if you go back to if you get let's say get, so that was a stage where Michael Foote was the Labour leader and he didn't have that reputation for economic competence. And that actually that actually had a bad effect on on the in my view on on Labour's, Labour's electoral ability. If you go back you, you, get, you get nearly all the prime ministers who get chosen had a high level of competence. I may have disagreed with, with particular policies, but that was a really critical element of how people thought and how people voted. Are they actually voting for a party leader or economic policy leaders who know what they're, what they're talking about. Now, why is this so, so important? I mean, I agree to today, today, you're absolutely right. This is, a, this is a bad moment to be pitching the sorts of arguments we're, we're, we're pitching. But there are, it seems to us, um, key groups in the electorate who are deeply concerned about how the, how the economy works and deeply concerned about how the advanced sectors of capitalism work. For a start most people who work in those areas uh, certainly want the the economy to work work well. If you go beyond people who work in all the uh, high value added sectors of the economy, service sectors uh, or or whatever uh, you come to a very wide Group, part of the electorate, which I think we believe has been really neglected a lot in the literature. And that's, that's what we call aspirational voters or aspirational families. And as we see it, an awful lot of aspirational voters are basically concerned that their children and their family are going to do well, their children, a very very long-standing idea is that people wanted their children to do better than they had done. And this notion of aspirational votes, which, which actually doesn't interestingly play a large part in the political science literature, so sorry, you'd know, know, know more about it. Than I would, but I don't think it's become a really key element. And yet, it seems to be almost a driving force of advanced capitalism. That people want—they—they want to see the economy, jobs developing in the economy, which will enable their children, if they get get the right level of education, to do better than they to do better than they have done. That's great. I'm just.
2: David, you're like Mrs. May. You're trying to run down the clock. (laughs) I'm
3: really sorry about that. My second
2: challenge. Second
3: challenge. So now that you've persuaded me on the first
0: one. But you're very clever to have spotted that. That's fantastic. I'll be be
2: a little briefer now uh, so we have time uh, for the Q&A. So so my second challenge is now you've obviously persuaded me that there's this symbiotic relation, well, that, that democracies can support capitalism and vice versa. But are you, by implication, also making the argument that you can't also have very successful advanced capitalism in non-democratic states? So the example I was thinking of was Singapore, which is one of the countries that, as as Tobin was mentioning, has become an uh, an advanced capitalist state, which has high levels of economic competence. Yes. And if you are exactly the kind of voter you just described, this sort of middle class, decisive middle class voter. Of course, we have elections in Singapore, but it's basically a non-party, one party state. We don't have free and fair elections. So my question is well, why wouldn't you want that sort of system? You know, Isn't that also, I'm not saying that system would evolve because I might, but that is also compatible with that sort of theory. There's also aligned interest there of decisive middle class voter in a state like Singapore. Um, So, so do you think that's the case or do you have a different take on that would be my question? And that leads me to a second question about this relationship between capitalism and democracy and that is, is it liberal democracy that's essential or does the liberal part not matter? And I think this matters because a lot of the criticism and a lot of the concern about what's going on now is we still have the democracy, but it's the liberal that's under threat. And you sort of get at that when you talk about this mainstreaming, yes, of of populist parties. So the Danish People's Party, oh yes, they've become very mainstream in economic policies but they would still lock all the foreigners up, all the refugees up on some island. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that is actually a policy proposal, Yeah, or have they done it? On some island, and they still you know, support taking away their jewellery. and, and you know, so, so, so you have a set of, of parties, but also governments. We look at what's happening in Poland and, and Hungary. That's where there's a sort of backsliding in terms of the liberal part of democracy. So maybe that the liberal is not needed because the decisive middle-class voter is not going to be affected by that. So, or is that also part of your story? Does the liberal part of democracy have any function or is that irrelevant?
0: Yeah, just, just five minutes, please. David, do you want to go first? Okay. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. First of all, uh, no, you clearly can have authoritarian governments and advanced, advanced capitalism. Uh, Singapore, I mean, I, have, I think Singapore is obviously moving towards, rapidly moving towards democracy. Uh, <coughs> But 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 <laughs> it's, clear, uh, it's very clear that it's very clear that Singapore, and South Korea, Taiwan all worked very all worked very. One might even say all needed to go through a period of authoritarian government in order to get where they where they've got to now. Do we want liberal democracy? Blo- yes, we. But I think we want liberal democracy with advanced capitalism because it's actually rather difficult to to. So China, I'm, I'm, I don't think China is an advanced capitalist country. No, I didn't moment.
2: mention China deliberately.
3: <laughs> what you do need to have is you need to have very open, open, open societies if you're going to have really successful advanced capitalism. So if you look at Hong Kong, say, actually even if you look at if you look at Singapore, which has changed a great deal as far as that's concerned, you, you need to have big cities where. A lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, with the one exception, they have to be really well educated. That's the precondition. So I would say yes, liberal liberal democracy is what what is what is needed.
1: Yes, I completely agree with that, and I think walking about around in in big cities like London is a wonderful experience because there is so much diversity and we are allowed to do so many things that would have been difficult um, 50 years ago. Uh, There's just much more tolerance. Uh, So I agree, of course, that uh, these uh, populist parties uh, moving against uh, immigrants is a nasty thing, but there are also these other things that are going on where uh, the world is becoming, uh, in in our world, much more uh, liberal, if you will. Singapore and uh, authoritarianism um, y- yeah I-, I think I think we want to say that democracy is a sufficient condition for advanced capitalism to thrive, but it is not a necessary condition, perhaps, and Singapore seems to be an exception. There are not too many exceptions around when you think about it, and so uh, of course all uh, all the um, uh, East uh, Asian countries uh, the tigers went. Through a period of authoritarianism, uh, and then eventually uh, evolved into to democracy. And I think one of the main reasons for that was that they created a huge um, educated middle class that started making demands on the, on the government. Uh, that it le- eventually uh, led to 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 opening. So that's a very Lipset kind of uh, uh, argument about uh, the connection between economic uh, uh, growth and. Um, and and democracy, but that did happen. And it's really interesting that you have these countries, these exceptions, right, that are creating basically highly advanced uh, economies. How is that possible, uh, given that you have to have this very, very delicate uh, relationship between the economic and political system? A conjecture is that this has to do with the threat of war in, in these countries, right? If you take South Korea... Um, It seemed like they had made uh, under Park uh, basically a decision that they had to invest massively in education in order to modernize the economy and therefore create an effective bulwark uh, against against North uh, Korea. And North Korea didn't need to do that because they were basically supported by the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union and uh, communism, and they just needed to show the flag. We are... Supporting communism and they would be safe, but no, so not so for uh, for South Korea. And I think so. Sort of, so the threat of war was kind of a functional equivalent to the pressure for pushing the advanced sectors that we are describing in these advanced democracies. But I think eventually it did evolve into to democracies. Okay, Sarah.
2: Okay, so final challenge, and then you will have a <laughs> host of challenges. So so that's about the national embedded, embeddedness argument that I think is very. Uh, important in, um, to your argument and also in how you differ from some of what you call the left critiques. And, of course, there is this, this idea that because of location, cost, specificity, capital can't just move, and therefore governments have a lot of control, uh, and they can tax and redistribute and so on. <coughs> so when I was reading this, my thought was about the sort of growth of regional integration, and particularly the European Union, which is an area that I work on. And is there a puzzle here? So, of course, why do governments need um, the European Union and, in particular, the development that's happened with the EU in terms of going from more of a deregulatory to more positive regulation, including of, of, of various ways of regulating advanced capital? Why do they need that if they can do it all by themselves? And is it because also this location co-specificity. It might be that you can't, you know, what you're saying is you need a lot of skilled workers. So if you're in banking, you want to be in banking, but you also want the lawyers and you also want the consultants and you also want the big companies. You want it all that, And that's what we see with London, which is another capital city why they're so successful. But why can't, are you not still competing with Paris? You might not be competing with, you know, sort of, less advanced capitalists, but isn't there still competition between countries, and how does that play into your argument? So, so the two examples I think, one is of course, I mean, sorry to be sort of so Brexit obsessed, but there's a nervousness yeah in, in, in London about what will happen to companies and financial institutions. But if they're so national embedded, you say repeatedly in, your, in, in the book that advanced capital is immobile. If it's immobile, why are people nervous? Maybe they shouldn't be nervous. Maybe you know that that's just a fallacy but 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 there there is certainly that idea out there that that there's moving and the second question is something like for example what happened with Ireland and the and the commission so here of course we have the EU commission going after uh, apple uh, because Ireland is basically giving them tax benefits. Well, that looks like Ireland is trying to attract this immobile capital by giving them tax benefits, and the EU is coming in as a supranational regulatory body. So my last question is, Can we, is there still a need for regulation, a strong government beyond the nation-state, and why is that the case if it's so nationally embedded? And then finally, could you imagine, also on the democratic thing, that democracy is not that embedded in the nation-state, and in fact, we could imagine in time a sort of symbiotic relationship between advanced capitalism and democracy at a supranational level?
3: Great questions? Well, first I think in terms of of Ireland, a lot of the the concern in Ireland has been to attract uh, attract capital which is mobile in the sense of attracting American American companies to set up in Ireland to get around the tariff barriers in, in Europe. And they're largely in one form or another um, relatively not very they don't use very embedded uh, skilled labor d- different to, to the actual development of software in, 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 in Ireland in Ireland itself um, as far as as far as the actual movement of um, of companies from London, I think the movement of companies from London is actually. Much the movement of the financial sector in London is it, going to be much less large than people people have been imagining or people have been talking about in the in the press. There are some regulations which mean that you have to have various types of various types of companies or uh, or whatever in, in actually within the EU it, it itself. So that's a regulation which clearly isn't going to. Make a, cause a problem for embedded, embedded capitalism, but the actual amount of movement, financial movement which has taken place, is actually pretty, is actually pretty limited, more generally in terms of this whole question of different advanced countries and how they inter, interrelate. There is a great deal of spe- one of the aspects of advanced capitalism is it encourages a great deal of specialisation. Part of that specialisation comes out actually in varieties of varieties of capitalism, and that's I, th- if uh, probably not to go on at any length about that, that's I think why we why we have have different different countries with different sets of of internal regulations, and and a lot of those internal regulations, particularly how educational systems work. So
2: we don't need the EU.
0: (laughs)
1: <laughs> so totally so I, <laughs> I, I know David is a remainer, so, so he will say we need we need uh, the EU for certain things. <laughs> but uh, as as a Dane, as as you know, the the only reason that Denmark is part of the EU is really free trade, right? This is this is really the main reason, uh, and it is uh, still mainly a free trade uh, area above everything else. It's also. Um, partly trying to coordinate another aspect of uh, international trade which is exchange rates, right, and so the common currency is a response to that and other countries are just uh, linking up to that common currency creating, by the way, huge problems because uh, of the national autonomy of governments and to to, to pursue different fiscal policies, right, uh, that's very difficult to do uh, within a currency uh, union uh, so it 's not diffi- it 's not an easy thing to, uh, to do, I think in terms of regulatory policies it 's still very limited uh, what uh, the eu does and how big an effect it has on national economies and Maybe one of the exceptions that you mentioned is uh, competition policy I think Competition policy, competition policy at the European level, is important, and it's sort of been delegated. A lot of these uh, competition policies have been uh, delegated to the EU level, to the uh, competition um, commissioners, uh, and um, and it is a very uh, powerful machine, right? And and they are actually enforcing uh, competition in a very aggressive way along the lines that we we suggest. And it might be that something like that is be- better done at the EU level, but I think it's mostly about uh, about free trade.
3: So but just just to, just to carry on about or to go on about free well, trade. Well, qu-
0: quickly. <laughs> no, I
3: th- well, I think the I think what has proved to what has really developed over the past 30, 40 years has been trade in services, and trade in services turns out to be a very complex thing. So the single market is actually something which is of great importance of great importance and arguably of great importance in the customs union and that is something, single market which is difficult to do without having at least some real framework for cooperation across uh, across the advanced countries in Europe.
0: That's great. So can, we th- can we thank Sarah for those great comments and critiques? And <clears throat> we, we have about 20, 20 minutes left for comments from the floor. I suggest we have groups of three questions to, to try and make them a bit more economical so lots of people already... Um, yes, uh, in the red scarf. Um,
3: uh,
0: it's
4: Donna Carmichael. I'm a PhD student in sociology at LSE. And my question is directed at, uh, at Torben. And I wanted to politely challenge your argument about the... Uh, the fact that uh, you're saying that capital is not footloose or mobile. And I think you're right in the context you presented it, which was very much focused on a production driven economy and your talk of you know, kind of production networks, specialized uh, labor, embedded networks, and agglomeration and clustering. <coughs> <coughs>
3: Interesting.
0: No. Is we well, waiting, wait, oh, no, no, no. another mic.
4: Hello, hello, can you hear me?
1: Yes, it's not. Is it better? Good.
4: Um, it's not good. So I will start again. Uh, my question okay, is, yeah. is, for, uh, is for Torben, and I wanted to challenge your argument that capital is not footloose. I think you're right in the context of a production-driven economy, and you clearly suggested that in your comments about production networks, about embedded uh, specialized labor, about agglomeration and um, clusters. But what's happened over the last 30 years is that model has has diminished in many ways, and we now see the rise of financialization and finance-driven a capitalism, which under a neoliberal model has resulted in massive deregulation of the banking sector, of the rise of shadow banking systems, the rise of alternative investments such as hedge funds and private equity. And those, those changes have made it ripe for rent seeking mobile capital to flow into those uh, you know, emerging um, instruments. Um, and so I think we're in a finance-driven economy Wait. more so. Got so that. that's okay. my question.
0: That's the first question. Who, who's next? Uh, yes, in the Plaid Cymru Fund. And then
5: Thanks, uh, Ian McLean, Oxford University. Uh, Sarah says that you are relying implicitly on the median voter theorem, and I expect you are. So uh, I can see. Uh, through rose-tinted glasses, that the median voter might eventually sort things out in Poland, in Hungary, in the UK. The median voter is already doing Mm -hmm. good work in Czech Republic, for instance. But then I think possibly the great exception is the United States of America because uh, uh, of the composition of the U.S. Senate and because of a decision taken in July of 1787, which made it possible to create the United States, but also put the median a voter for some purposes in the median state, which is on the wrong side of the divide that... Uh, who, who is on the wrong side of the divide that Torbin set out?
0: Okay, one more question. Is there one, anyone over here? Yes? Yes.
3: Um.
2: Obviously you, uh, from the European Institute. Obviously your book seems to uh, say that you know, um, it was governments who created the knowledge economy through all these steps of financial liberalisation and so on. But this was a process over at least two decades. What made all these decisions of very different governments over many years changing governments? to kind of converge on this knowledge economy in advanced democracies. It sounds a bit too functionalist to be too, too good to be true.
0: Hmm. Okay, who would like to respond to any of those questions? Do
3: you want to come to to Faltra? <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think the, the straightforward answer to that is 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 literally the IT revolution and the form which it took. And I think that imposed a very common set of problems on a range of different countries. And they had a, individual countries. Uh, one of the things the IT revolution did was by decentralizing um, production and innovation and so on, there was a huge incentive for opening up trade, for opening up the capital movements, uh, and, and so on. So that, that would be the... Simple, simple answer to to that. So that's the, what I see as the common thing. And I apologize for being functionist.
0: <laughs> any response to another question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, mobility. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I, I think it's a good question. Um, I, I think we definitely see uh, financialization as uh, as integral to this uh, reinvention of, uh, of capitalism that we're talking about because we're basically going from a world with um, Uh, huge uh, conglomerates, uh, very, very centralized and encompassing firms, with most of the um, research and development actually going on inside uh, these firms and funded uh, from the inside. As we move to a much more decentralized uh, economy um, and uh, we see this uh, enormous uh, burst of new uh, companies uh, uh, emerging, uh, in order for that to function, you really have to open up financial uh, markets. I think it's also important for what I, I said about nonlinear careers that people can plug in uh, to financial markets in order to go back and forth uh, between work and, and family and work and uh, further into education. I do not think that this creates um, a, the kind of uh, mobility uh, of capital that makes it harder for governments to... Uh, tax. Uh, if, if you think about uh, me investing, say, in, in European stock markets, uh, uh, being residing in, in, in the U.S., uh, I'm being taxed on my returns on those uh, stock holdings, uh, like uh, I would be investing in American stock markets. Uh, that that would not uh, at all change. The same thing with bonds. So I do not think that uh, the mobility of financial capital itself is undermining the capacity of the state to to tax. Um, David, do you want to say something more about that?
3: No, I want to reply to Ian. The (laughs) the last U.S. question? Yeah, Yeah. so, so, Ian, first of all, I think that's obviously an incredibly interesting question about the difference between uh, majoritarian systems and PR-negotiated systems. But my view is that the it's in negotiated systems in the PR systems of Western Europe where it's been more possible to integrate populist parties into actual decision making, not everywhere, not Sweden but certainly certainly in, yes, in, yes. in Denmark, yes. whereas in the, in the first past the post systems uh, you, you, know, you no longer have as it were a medium A median voter, you have two quite different blocks of voters with very, very different interests, and I think it's really difficult. And I think you so Trump, as it were, has scored by capturing one of those one of those groups, but not the other. And a really interesting question in this country is where you have these two very different groups, and it's very difficult to find a common place between well edu- highly educated people who live in, who live in cities where, with wealth creation on the one hand and less educated people who live in smaller towns and so on with very different interests on the other it 's very difficult to find a way to find a median voter in in between so one real worry is is the, the, is the conservative party going to choose as it seems to be choosing at the moment to support one of these groups, but not the other, and do do two parties just divide up in a in a median voter system like like this, but where where there isn't a median voter?
0: Okay, we have some time for more questions um, at the back there. Yeah, Luke, the Mike.
6: Thank you very much. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes.
0: Yes. Um,
6: You say that uh, business is politically weak as a class. And Torben, you live in the United States, where we have seen for many decades big business to be very influential in politics and in many areas that are fundamental for uh, all citizens, such as uh, food industry or healthcare industry. Uh, and they have been able to do that because of uh, all sorts of different types of capital, which wasn't really possible for citizens because they are much more fragmented; that they don't have access uh, to uh, the finances they would require for that, etc., etc. So I would be really curious if you could explain how did you arrive to that claim that business is not politically uh, is politically weak as a class? Thank you.
0: Oh, okay. And there's one in the front here with a light blue jumper.
7: Uh, I would like to hello it work.
0: yes yes test. testing testing yes test. mm.
7: oh. I would like to make a question to Sarah. If, uh, basically when you talk about uh, liberal democracy, I live in many different countries in Europe, and uh, I mean I totally agree about the economic situation about the. The, the knowledge economy, all this. But I realize that uh, each country in Europe, there is a, a huge difference that is the justice system. So I realize that in some country, there is a kind of inequality because the justice system doesn't work. And I've been impressed because when I have been to New York for the first time, on the front of the Tribunal of New York, there is written that uh, the base for democracy is uh, – uh, a justice system that works. So basically, I think in Europe there is a kind of fragmentation of a justice system within each different country.
0: Okay, we one more over here. Uh, yes, in the front. You have a notion of a, of a system called liberal democracy. Um, do you regard those two parts as equal, or is 50-50, or is the liberalism more basic than the democracy, or the democracy more basic than the liberal? Yep. Okay. Um, well, over to you two? or yep. well, you three, sorry. Yep. You want to go first? Go so,
2: sorry. just to say, this is obviously about the book. So, but you're right. There is a fragmentation of the justice system in Europe. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. So, I think. I mean, we, we we talked about liberal, liberalism and democracy and what the relationship was between them. And um, I do. I think we. I, I think there's a, This is. This is becoming a huge a huge divergence between a populist view which doesn't necessarily include <coughs> liberalism and another view which does include liberalism. I personally think they're very closely related to the way in which the economy works, that if you if you live in a if you live in an environment like London where you have very advanced companies who are employing lots and lots of people with very different backgrounds Except they're all educated, then you end up by having a very strong liberal element to, to to democracy. But I think it's very easy for that not to be the case, and I think that's mm-hmm. shown in a lot of a lot of populist parties.
1: Yeah, I think I think this was also your, your question, and um, yeah, yeah, I think I think this is this is a really uh, good question and something I'd like to think more about. Um, uh, is there sort of uh, variance in the degree to which these countries are liberal uh, as opposed to majoritarian uh, i think i think you know this is sort of this sort of going back to to work by Engelhardt and kitchell and and others um, i have always imagined that we were moving towards more liberal societies right and And, of course, uh, populism is challenging this uh, but only but only I would say uh, in a serious way uh, in in the u s right now uh, and we 'll see if this is going to hold up. Uh, but I definitely see the distinction and it 's an important distinction, and I think it is a distinction we capture in this cleavage, this new uh, cleavage in, in in the knowledge economy uh, but i I do think sort of long term we are optimist in the sense that things are moving. You know, just terms, in terms of demographics and in terms of the size of the economy towards these advanced set, uh, sectors and the cities, we, are, we have much more libertarian <laughs> uh, values uh, than we see in, in populist parties. So I don't think these populist <clears throat> parties, uh, for the most part, are likely to be uh, politically uh, dominant uh, over time. And the question about business,
0: business, business class?
3: I couldn't
0: hear it fully. It. Yeah. Perhaps we can ask that afterwards. i uh, will just aware of the time I think we have, we have round for one more round of questions at the back there. We didn't hear it, so I think we're just going to. Should it, okay, yeah. should we do that? Yes, could, would you mind repeating the question? In the U.S. Yes, quickly, quickly, please, yeah, yeah.
6: Can you say that business is uh, politically weak as a class... But you come from or you live in the U.S. where we've seen for decades that it has not been the case that actually business has been able to influence uh, very important policies in various sectors, while citizens are very much fragmented. They don't have the capacity to organize and they don't have the resources to push for policy changes. Um, So how did you arrive at the conclusion that business is politically weak as a class?
0: Do you want to reply quickly to that? Mm <laughs>
3: so, I, I mean, I I I would say that the if business had been powerful, it would have stymied a number of the policy moves which uh, which Trump has made. Equally, I would say, if, uh, but the, the same is true here. If, if business had been powerful. It would have stymied a whole number of moves in relation to Brexit, and as, uh, I mean, as, as a, a, a former foreign secretary, said, "Fuck business." So.
1: That was a quote.
3: Yes. No, sorry, that was a, that was yes, uh, <laughs> that, that was a quote. Sorry, just in case. <laughs> just in case the LSE is mo- <laughs> monitoring, monitoring what I'm saying. It is, yeah. yeah. It is. In videos, yeah. And yeah. videos, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs>
0: um, okay, two, two more questions now, and then we can finish. Um, the question there, yeah,
5: yeah. I, I think this is a, an associated question uh, to the previous one. To what extent do you think the uh, political power is shifting to these big corporations, international corporations, away from democratic institutions.
0: Okay, and um, looking for a bit more diversity. Yeah, over, over on the right-hand side here.
8: Oh, yeah. yep. Hi, thank you for your presentation. So my question is that, might you be possibly conflating the nation-state with democracy more generally? Because um, from the presentation... Um, The foundations of the symbiotic relationship do not seem to be exclusive to democratic states per se, but nation-state industrial policy more generally. So, for example, as you might know through the early experience of industrialization with certain western countries, or the experience of the East Asian tigers, uh, state-led capitalism and authoritarian states developed economic sectors, um, performed firm restructuring, as you mentioned, and developed positive social infrastructures such as universities and tech clusters. So, especially if we consider um, the voter irrationality of the middle class that Sarah mentioned earlier, does this not imply that your thesis might be possibly become reducible to a symbiosis of the nation-state and um, and and advanced capitalism, and the democratic component actually is extraneous? Thank you. Thank you. Um, just one final question. I hope you just go back to time
0: If someone's quick, um, I'm looking for. Some, yeah. Okay. Neil on the front. I, this is an I.I. I in, 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 internal question here.
5: Huh. So. <laughs> so I really, really like the story, and I really, really want to believe it's true. But <laughs> you guys are full professors. You presumably paid off your mortgages and things like that, and I'm not quite in that position yet. Um, <laughs> so I, ju- I guess my concern about it is that it feels a little bit complacent. Um, so I'm wondering, what exactly do you want to be done? What's your sort of call to arms to finish on? Yeah, that's a great, great final question. So let's go through,
0: through Sarah, Torben, and David. I'm not sure which order. Why don't with you, David? Could, yeah. can I just
3: can I come? Yes. I, mean, I, I think this—the the question about the nation-state is absolutely is absolutely spot on. In fact, what we argue is that the nation-state and democracy and advanced capitalism are all symbiotic with each other. The the advanced cap, the the. Democracy gets the nation state to behave in the right way. Behaving the right way for the nation state includes a whole lot of things it also includes huge investments in research, education, a whole lot of a whole lot of infrastructural things which are needed for for advanced capitalism to work. And very, and then in turn, that leads advanced capitalism to, work. and if advanced capitalism work, is working well, then democracy will then be reinforcing the way the nation state works. So I think it's a very, I, I think this question of the link, which is very critically connected to education actually, people are educated in the country. In a nation, and that's very, very central to why it is that all these things tie together in the way in which they, in the way in which they do. But to talk about it afterwards, I very, very much think it's important. But, so, but
1: it, is, it is an interesting question whether there could be some functional equivalence to democracy to uh, force the government to uh, to make these investments in the first place, and, and that goes back to the discussion we had before about the threat of war and. Um, and, and building up uh, strength in the state, independent of having that kind of electoral <coughs> pressure, and there are probably some cases where that's that's true. So it's not it's not a necessary democracy is not a necessary condition, but it does seem to be a sufficient condition, and it does seem to be um, the cases all, in in almost all the countries that we are looking at, except for Singapore.
0: And what about the question at the back about corporate power and how that about- corporate influence and instance,
8: the so the I
3: think it's, I, I think this is. This, this is clearly a really, really interesting issue about if you take Google, for instance. what What's the power which Google Google has? What exactly is Google doing? Is Google... Return, so we, we had for 40 or 50 years of Fordism these huge, huge chandelierian conglomerates which did everything. Universities played a relatively a relatively minor or subsidiary role in terms of in terms of innovation. We now have it are now in this very different world where most of those conglomerates have been literally uh, destroyed in one form or another, where universities are far more integrated with the system and where we have lots and lots of small small companies doing doing innovative things. And the role of, I think, the role of Google is more being a venture capitalist company on a huge scale, where it's got the resources to put massive amounts of money on new areas of, new areas of technology. And if it's doing that, then it's doing a very different thing from acting as a, one of a group of powerful and coordinated companies seeking to change the way the... The way the, the the advanced capitalist system works, yep. but it's clearly a really interesting yes, question.
0: Yes. So, do you want to have the last word and any no, final reflections?
2: No You're called swarms. There was a question. What's yes, story? yes, yes.
3: So, okay. Yeah. So let us <laughs> have a go at this. Um, yeah, but you, you, you will go you will grow up and you'll you'll pay. <laughs> <laughs> off your mortgage, and I will be very respectful uh, towards you. Obviously,
1: um. is that you, an aspirational voter here? Yes, okay, uh, so I so.
3: So I think the I think here's this, uh, as I see it. You take this country, a lot of countries now, we're ha- literally halfway through this new technology regime of the uh, generated by the IT revolution. And we're at a very, very strange place in world history because if you take this country, roughly speaking, half of people under the age of, between, whatever it is, 25 and 45, have been to university and half haven't. We've never, ever been in a situation like that before where society has been so deeply cleaven by, cloven by, that sort of that sort of d- division. So it's not very surprising. The same is true of the United States. It's not very surprising that people are deeply, deeply unsure about how society is how society is working. So my own goal would be to say we have to have some way of gradually, gradually moving more and more people into into university, gradually increasing the participation rate in universities. It's something which can only take place slowly, unfortunately, because you need to have as many graduate jobs being created to give to the people who've gone through university for this to be a process which people are prepared to actually to actually go through. And I'm certainly imagining that if we lived in a world where 80% of young people went to university, we would be in a world which is very different and very much less divided than the world we live in at the moment. So that would be my that would be my help. So maybe when that's got up to seventy five percent.
1: That's where we headed, man. So that, that's the positive uh, message in, in the book that we think long term we're headed um, in that direction I think
0: it's th- 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 thanks to David Torburn and, and Sarah it's been a fantastic discussion, the book I, is, is available outside, I think David and Torburn are doing a signing if they can be persuaded, so it, I'm sure your appetite has being wetted, complacent controversial, yes. exciting it's about the future of the world, future of democracy future of capitalism, so please buy the book uh, and thank you very much for coming